Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a special treat, artist Wayne Thiebaud. Thiebaud is one of the world's greatest living painters. The Minetti Schrem Museum of Art at the University of California, Davis, has just opened Wayne Thiebaud 1958-1968, an examination of Thiebaud's early work and a look at how he developed his signature style and subjects. The exhibition was curated by Rachel Teagle and is on view through May 13th. Its strong catalog was published by the museum in association with University of California Press. Amazon offers it for $43. As ever, we'll have a link on manpodcast.com. One quick note, this is part one of what will be a two-part conversation, our first ever two-podcast interview. The second part of my interview with Thibaut will air next week. On the second segment, Portland Art Museum curator Julia Dolan joins me to discuss her exhibition, In the Beginning, Minor White's Oregon Photographs. But first, Wayne Tebow, after the break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. The critically acclaimed exhibition, Items, is Fashion Modern? is now in its final weeks at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. The New York Times says, quote, from biker jackets to burkinis, from little black dresses to saris, the exhibition is an eye-opening examination of practicality, religious belief, clubbishness, and personal identity. Get more info at moma.org and plan your visit today. The Guggenheim Museum in New York presents Joseph Albers in Mexico through March 28th. The exhibition features both rarely shown and iconic paintings by Joseph Albers, alongside photographs and photo collages of the artist's trips to archaeological sites in Mexico beginning in the 1930s. Through correspondence, ephemera, and works drawn from the collections of the Guggenheim and the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation, Joseph Albers in Mexico presents an opportunity to experience the least known aspect of Albers' practice, photography, offering new perspective on this celebrated abstract artist. In conjunction with the exhibition, on Tuesday, January 30th, Join art historian Ava Diaz for Copies Have More Fun, a fresh take on Albers' artistic and teaching practices. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash josephalbers. And we're back. Wayne Tebow, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Let's start with a 1959 painting titled Beach Boys, a picture with which you've opened a number of exhibitions over the years. As any art lover immediately recognize, it's your take on Cezanne's bather, and it's your take before you developed your trademark paint handling. Why do you like to start shows with, with that 1959 painting? It indicates a primary interest I have with painting, as painting made with hands, uninterrupted and not influenced by photography, and influence expressed specifically. In that case, I was enamored of a Spanish painter by the name of Joaquin Sorolla, and his work was entrancing to me. I didn't know anyone knew about him. 
I found it in a little pasted-in color photograph in the state library <laughs> and uh, asked people about it. They didn't seem to know him, except when I talked to, to an art editor at Art News, Thomas Hess, and I asked him if he knew a painter by the name of Joaquin Soroya. He said, oh, yeah, the John Singer Sergeant of Spain, he said. So then I had to sort of tell myself I better get some information about him. And he influenced me very much in that wonderful tradition of painting, premier coup painting, where you have to make an awful lot of mistakes to make those risks. And that then I realized that he had come through that marvelous tradition of Velasquez and Manet and so on. But the responsibility was to try and see what I could do with it. And at that point, I was painting a lot of abstract expressionist paintings as well. And I thought, maybe there's something here that I can combine together and see if I can get something out of that. And that was sort of the story of the Beach Boys. But I had also grown up on the beach in Southern California. Long Beach. And I'd sold papers on the beach, and I'd walked the beach. And I was even in high school a temporary summer lifeguard in high school. It seemed like a love of intimate concern. Are you one of the two Beach Boys? Is there anything autobiographical no, there? No, it's actually, there's a little detail of, as I remember, a Soroya or a Muriel painting of a boy sitting down. And that difficult to explain that the units of impression that came from those, coupled with memory, is what the painting is about. There's one other early painting I'd like to ask about. It's from 1957. It's been reproduced a lot. I've never seen it in person. It's called Banana Window. It's in the catalog for the Minetti Shrem show. It's not in the show. And it's full of quick, fragmented brush strokes, and there's a lot of negative space between the brush strokes. Is, is it Soroya? Is it an address of Cezanne? Because it kind of looks like the late kind of watercolory drawings with the negative space. And it also, the one other artist that struck me that it has a good bit of is, is John Marin. I don't know if you're a Marin fan, but it very much feels like Marin's early attempts at oils. That's a good reference, and it's one which I certainly experienced. Marin was an interesting influence in watercolor, I remember. That painting was made in New York, on a series of little scraps of canvas I bought while I went to New York to try to uh, meet my heroes. And at night I walked the uh, streets and didn't sketch as I remember from windows, but remember I'd go back and I pinned them up just on a wall and there might have been as many as 20 or 30 of little sketches oh. of windows like that. Shoe stores, jewelry stores, little grocery stores, rib ribbon stores, like those wonderful things in New York where they have one store selling 10 soldiers or something. That might explain the 1980-something jewelry painting which you made, which I've never quite been able to figure out where it came from. <laughs> <laughs>
So the exhibition at the Minetti Shrem, we're, we're taping this before it opens, of course, but it will start before you get to your, your trademark style, when your, your paint and brush handling was what looks to me like it's shorter and stabbier and most of all quicker. I've read some interviews you've done with former students who you taught when you were a professor at UC Davis, in which they tell you how clearly you told them about the relationship between moving the brush quickly across the canvas or slowly across the canvas and how that related to how a viewer experiences a painting. What was the beginning of your understanding of that? Maybe sign painting. Oh, right back to the very beginning yeah. of when you were mm -hmm. still in Long Beach. So what did you learn from... from? I, did, I didn't go to art school, as you probably know, but I had a lot of wonderful people who showed me how to do things. And there was an old sign painter watched me as a little... Uh, I was really sort of cleaning brushes in the sign shop or whatever else they had me do. And I got to do some show cards, which is a poster board and done with a with a sign painting brush with certain, you learn to make certain movements, single strokes, curved strokes. And the trick is to try and do what they call a one-shot kind of painting. That is, you don't crab it, you don't render it, you strike it directly. And he watched me try to make O's. And I had not learned how to make that brush turn so that you could make it in two strokes. So I had to go back and sort of clean it up with a little brush. And he saw me doing this old, wise German sign painter with a big walrus mustache. He says, why do you uh, have to go back and clean up the work? You should be able to do that directly. And I said, I don't know. I just said, he says, well, let me watch you make that. Oh, so... I mixed up the paint, sat down, and I started to work, and he moved around in front of me. And I said, aren't you going to watch me make the stroke? He says, yeah, I'm going to watch you. Just go ahead and make the stroke. And so I did what I did, and he says, now I know what your problem is. He says, you're looking where you're going and not where you need to go. Hmm. In other words, you have to risk going to the place where you know it has to end up. You don't trigger along the way. That's crabbing and moving too slowly. You have to just sit down for about an hour, just make these strokes and watch where you want to go, and you'll find you'll be able to do that. The wonder of the brush which we inherit over so many years is great evidence of what that treasure trove of actually tools of looking and responding, how much that means to painters and how they use it so wonderfully. And that's why when they asked de Kooning how he did his paintings, he held up brushes, if you remember. I got a big brush, I got a little brush. <laughs> you paint with a brush. So the gumball machine paintings are a tip of your cap to that experience and that learning? Well, that coupled with Walt Disney experience of drawing Mickey Mouse's ah, trousers. The circles? Buttons. The buttons, <laughs> ah. <laughs> so it looks like the early paintings in the Minetti Shrem show are painted with those quicker, shorter brush strokes. But then, of course, by the time we get to, say, 62, 63, you're all the way making these just lush, rich, thick, 
brushstroke white background type painting that mm. for which you know you would become famous and 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 yeah. you know your mature style has fully arrived do you remember <clears throat> what in 61 2 or 3 got you from shorter quicker stabbier brush strokes to to the more mature style what what the transition was i don't think i do it wasn't a conscious thing it was a sort of unpredictable series of events where when I came back from New York after meeting those wonderful painters I admired so much, particularly de Kooning and Klein, I was making all these uh, what I thought were the signs of art, drips or smudges or fancy signatures or whatever you could sort of think of that would make it look like what I naively thought of, well, that's what <laughs> art is. And he said to me, de Kooning, he says, you're, you've got some abilities and you're, you're wasting them on making the signs of art rather than thinking about what it is you want to do. Why do you want to paint anyway? He says, you have to find something that you're really interested in, which has meant something to you, which you've actually experienced, or uh, give it up. There are too many of people running around copying the signs of art. And uh, that's, and learn something more continually about art history. I remember he was very much interested in art history. But anyway, when I came back then to Sacramento in reference to your question, was, well, I guess I'd sort of better start over. I can uh, paint things, but he admonishes me, paint something that means something to you. Well, I didn't have anything. <laughs> but I did want to make some sort of formal enterprise which would guide me back to very fundamental things. And I, I know about the basic units that make composition and design and color. So I said, well, I'll start with a, with a format and begin to put some planes down, and I'll put some other shapes on, circles or uh, ovals. And that actually, I started making these ovals and thinking about where I'd worked in restaurants sort of seeing, remember seeing rows of pies. So all from memory, I thought, well, I'm going to make very plain triangles that sit on a plate properly and or try to orchestrate them, make them slightly different so that there's a kind of tempo or rhythm or sort of repetitive series of shapes that should orchestrate themselves into something very fundamental. And I ended up with, I remember thinking pies, and I put this pumpkin pie color down. I thought, my God, that's ugly. And there were some leftover initial scribes, ovals and things, which were different colors. And those little edges, I see oranges and blues, which were just actually beginning drawings in paint. And that seemed to uh, somehow compromise and somehow internalize color into this color of uh, pumpkin. Blues, so I'll just leave that. I'll leave that on the edge and see how that works and ended up with this this pie and said to myself, well, there's a, there's a nothing. 
<laughs> Good luck with that. But I couldn't leave it alone. Suddenly, I thought, well, I'm going to pursue this because it's really intriguing. And began to do a series of that and began to think of other things which I had seen and experienced, things that I thought had sort of been overlooked. I had painted pinball machines and Coke bottles, ball gum machines, but they were all encased in all those signs of art. In other words, mm-hmm. a lot of silver paint and a lot of gestures, sort of thinking, well, I don't want to really say too quickly that this is a gumball machine. So it was a, an odd, very curious kind of almost non-thinking, I think. But the results of these silly paintings then began to just be a really interesting thing to do. So I went on with it, but at the same time, I wore a parachute. I kept doing those other kinds of paintings. I kept on because I had just started teaching because I had a family and uh, realized you've got to make a living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was you were still at Sac State? Or were you at Davis by then? I was at the City College. Oh, you were at City College. Sacramento City College. Did you paint over those those parachute, those whatever, life jacket? Did you paint it? Let me try that again. (laughs) Uh, Those... uh, those were kept around because I had, had a little following ah. in Sacramento. Wonderful people here su- helped support me with rental gallery paintings. And, ah. uh, so they're out in the world somewhere. Yeah. And they were uh, very much a part of our, when we started our con- uh, artist contemporary artist cooperative gallery here. Yeah. I was going to ask you about de Kooning later, but seeing as you brought him up, you you went and lived in New York for about a year before coming back to Northern California. Right. As far as I can remember, you were one of the very few, if not the only, of the Northern California painters, all of whom loved de Kooning, Diebenkorn Park, who had firsthand experience with de Kooning, who went and, and sat at the knee, so to speak. Did coming back here... I should clarify that. Tyler, because he was very easy to approach. And I went back, actually, just the first time I met him to try and get him to let us come to his studio because we were taking students back there so we'd get a trip to New York. I sat and had tea with him. He was very generous. I watched him paint a little bit. And he he said, well, maybe maybe when your students come. But he knew he was not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't want to see a bunch of junior college students. Did coming back here with the Kooning stories and being able to relate to other Northern California painters, things he told you, did that give you a certain currency here? Did that, did, did the Diebenkorns, even into the 60s, want to hear those stories? Well, you know, I didn't get to know Dick until pretty later. Like much 62 later. or 3 or something, yeah, right? Yeah, I met him uh, making... Uh, Prince, actually, at Catherine's basement studio. Catherine Brown uh, yeah. at Crown Point, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, he, the first connection between you two that I found was in 61 when he was the juror for an Oakland Museum juried art show, and he was the juror and awarded you a prize. That's right, um, he did. But I didn't really know him then. Mm-hmm. I knew about him. So in, in, the, in the decades since the early 60s, kind of the, the, the Elmer Bischoff and David Park and Paul Warner way of painting has, has come to be known as the, the loaded brush 
way of painting. Did you identify with the loaded brush guys? You weren't in San Francisco. You were in Sacramento. Yeah, they all came to be friends later, and we became pretty good friends, drawing together and actually visiting and so on. I didn't think of myself because they sort of had their club intact, and I was not part of that. I admired them greatly. I admired Bischoff. I admired Park. I didn't know Park. I knew Bischoff and Devon Corn and Paul Warner, Bill Brown, and Nate Oliveira. So in that sense, I was acquainted with them, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I was part of that circle. One other early question on, on the style of your paintings. You mentioned the brushes you would use while doing sign painting. Did you still use any of those brushes on canvas, or did you move on to whole different brushes? No, I used those. I used uh, all kinds of brushes. Yeah, I used sign painting brushes. Let's talk about how you made and make still life paintings. Did you, do you set up models of cupcakes or whatever and then paint from them? No, they're all from memory. Even at the very beginning? Yeah, oh, wow. even at the beginning. So the lighting that's in those even early still life paintings, super bright light, tons and tons of light. That all came from your your experience working in L.A. in the in the film industry, came from your interest in light and painting. How did those paintings get so much bright light in them? It's still from memory, but a memory coded in light source regulation. In other words, when, I, when we teach lighting, which, which is the basis of studying plaster casts or anything like that is simply to observe the light source and the shadow core and the highlight and the dark reflected light and cast shadow. Those are all tools to give you an acquaintance with how you make your light. So all of those food things are lit from memory and from actually a uh, program formula. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when, when you would paint figures, you would paint from models. That's totally different. Yeah. So tell me why. <laughs> tell me why you could do one from memory, but for figures you needed models. The figure is impossible to paint. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean uh, that we know the figure so well and live with it that we can find the slightest thing wrong with the best portrait mm -hmm. there is or the best figure painting drawing. I have a little book of the best figure drawings from all over the United States art schools, and every one of them has some flaw. So if what happens in figure painting generally to be successful are determined, determined styles and programs and uh, prejudices. A program that determines its base and, and offers the criticism of its character, whether it's cubism, fauvism, surrealism, impressionism, all of those are uh, conventions. Each convention is the basis upon which a painting is judged. So in something like figure painting, mostly when you see figure painting, it takes on a convention, a very specific one, whether it's the academic one through Ang, for instance, whether it's premier coup painting of 
direct examination of a one-to-one memory of what you've just seen, like Velasquez. See, all, all painting is from memory, but the shorter the memory, the closer you are then to determining what you're actually looking at. Conventions take you away from that and tell you when you're doing an impressionist figure like Serrat, you're only going to be able to see so much detail. And on and on. Then the figures work a lot better. But the toughest thing is to take on some sort of clarity of proper relationship, part part structure, part the anatomical correctness of portion and so on. And that's damn near impossible to do well. One of the things that distinguishes all of these paintings, whether you're figurative paintings or you're, you're, you're still life paintings, are the, sh- are the shadows. And your shadows are probably the most distinct shadows since Pierre Bernard's. First off, were Bernard's shadows important to you? Bernard, very important, right. Specifically the shadows? I hadn't thought of the shadows, but certainly the color and the use of color. His, his palette is the same palette now I ask the students to use warm and cool of each primary. So you have two reds, two yellows, two blues, and black and white. That allows you to make almost any color that you want. So the shadows, the other aspect of it is the enormous variation is built into the shadow in terms of possibility. Shadow can be almost anything where the object can't. So if you put a piece of pie down, you can have it have almost no shadow or a long, very long shadow in between, a color shadow, a very intense one, an almost ephemeral one. So those options of the shadow are another wonderful tool for compositional variety and pleasure. A lot of times when I look at your paintings, I think the shadows are the parts you must have worked hardest on. Yes, the background and the shadows are enormously important. It's one of the most difficult things to get students to do. (laughs) (laughs) There's a, a fairly recent painting that's kind of oddly dated of yours called Cupcake and Shadow. It's dated 95 to 2012. It's a single solitary cupcake on a ground with a dramatic shadow. And it looks a heck of a lot like a Monet haystack. Were, were those were Monet's shadows important? Yes, very much so, because they're uh, opposing. In other words, they're, he saw that by observation, looking at a kind of ochre wheat field with a bright sunlight casting its shadow on this form. He stared at it. And if you stare in the sunlight at that color, you'll get its negative afterimage, right? Which is purple, towards purple. So that essentially is the uh, potential for coloration in terms of his uses. And it gives you lots of, again, license to build in wonderful colors into a what can be rather an ordinary scene. And fauvism is the same thing. The main structural character of a composition is its 
value structure. And the value structure can then be articulated into the following three elements. It can be a, a hue, a value, or an intensity. And fauvism is dependent on that structural character and the possibilities for it. Or Deran is probably one of the best of those, I think. His, his fauve paintings are among my... We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, I think we'll, we'll come to fauvism in a bit. I have more on fauvism. <laughs> I think we're, there aren't a whole lot of us who probably like to sit around talking about fauvism these days, right? <laughs> Cubism is so eclipsed it in the United States. <laughs> you mentioned the, the, the different colors and shadows, and I had lined up a painting to reference about that, that very thing. And it's 1971's Four Cupcakes. And the shadows of the four cupcakes are blue, yellow, orange, and green. And often you outline the, 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 the shadows with a bright-hued color or, or colors, multiple colors in one outline mm, of the right. shadow. Yeah. So a couple things about that. In a painting like that, it obviously mattered to you that the shadows were different colors. Why? Variations get away from boredom, hopefully. And just because it, for me, uh, most of the judgment of painting for me is based just on feeling. How does it feel? Does it feel too much? Does it go over it? Is it melodramatic? Is it a kind of ineffable, like in Morandi? His primaries are so <laughs> unprimary that they become beautiful, just ineffably in terms of their glowing richness with such limited means. So if you vary the color of the shadows, you're keeping any one color or shadow from being too much? Trying to keep the value the same. Mm, oh, value the same. Yeah. Otherwise, it would uh, look pretty rickety and uh, difficult to get the, the form to come together very well. What I'm a, acting like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, God, there are a lot of paintings that what a bore. suggest that. <laughs> what what are the <laughs> you know one of the things that you do and have done with shadows for decades is that you don't just allow the shadow to blend into the white background or whatever color the background is. You often outline the shadow with well, one color or more often a series of colors. Why do you outline the edge of the shadow with color? color that's different from what the shadow is, I should say. I was surprised to know that I was a cubist. Thomas Hess told me I was a cubist. Most New York thing anybody ever said. Well, he's right, actually, because I like, I'm, I'm, my, what modernness there is in me is essentially a fascination with the flat that can seem not flat. And the, the great effect that someone like Degas can have and keep that surface active in spite of the illusion sort of references, the plastic character, the beauty, the richness. And someone once said to him, supposedly, about the beauty of a landscape they were looking at. He says, man, look at that wonderful deep space. Isn't that a beautiful picture you would make? And Degas said, yes, it would make a good flat picture. And you know, if you're attuned to Cezanne, really, that they, you know what, what he means. Because that was a relief, in a way, of Cezanne, that he gave us the flat reference continually. 
or ways to get at the flatness of the picture. Is that why you like bright white so much? Because it flattens out pictures? I like the ambiguity of it, where it's either like gold, mm. either in, intimate gold and painting. infinite, like endless, or immediate. That duality is what keeps the pictures, for me, on that modernist ethos. It's, uh, that's the way I see modernism, anyway. This is a total stab in the dark. Is Moby Dick important to you? The novel Moby Dick? Because there's, you know, such an address of whiteness in, in Moby Dick, and whiteness is a background yeah. on which all of America exists. I, don't, I can't say that it, it made it any connection to mm. me. Outside of its literary beauty and interest, interesting question. I thought I'd take a shot. <laughs> you never know. One, one way we could continue is to talk about groupings of paintings and just go grouping to grouping to grouping. I'm going to try not to do that and to try to kind of meander a bit. So let's talk about Richard Diebenkorn for a moment. Never mind <laughs> when you met him. We talked about that a moment ago. When did his work become interesting or even important to you? Do you remember? I think almost the first time I saw it. Oh, wow. So late 50s? Yeah, maybe even earlier. Oh, wow. Didn't know him as we determined. Yeah. But, no, his work was very, very uh, impressive to me. I th almost think of Dick actually as a French painter, oddly enough. I mean, the Bernard, the Matisse, the... Yeah, the, the good dressing, the good salad, the good touch. Have you ever made paintings that you've thought of as a specific address of Diebenkorn? This painting is an address of something in him? Oh, yes. I'm very influenced by him. Such as? Is there any one or two paintings uh, that you think is a particularly clear example? Tabletop still lifes. Cups of coffee. Um, cityscapes where he makes those wonderful cast shadows of buildings be as important as the buildings. That those are the late, influential. late 50s. His color, wherein he, in his lines, he'll have a single line, but with as many as six colors in the line. That's very influential to me. Does that live in your paintings and the edges of the shadows, maybe? Possibly. His pentamente, leaving your tracks as access to your thought process, his uh, willingness to do that, his uh, admonition about not going headlong, a very important lesson in thinking about your work, studying your work, analyzing your work, so that you don't get convenient in the way in which you're working, how long he would look at his own work, and when we got acquainted, how we'd sit together and look at the work. His or yours? His work. In Ocean Park, when we visited, there were all the clues for his paintings, looking out that transit window and seeing the abutments and the green grass and so on and the house, little houses, rose. But just how he would look and smoke, unfortunately, at the painting, and then uh, ask, he might he would ask me something like, what do you think? 
So I would look as carefully as I could and give him as honest a reaction as well. Maybe something in the upper right-hand corner. Yes, exactly, he said. He'd go up and do something. And I had exactly the same experience with de Kooning. Where he would ask? Where he got up from our conversation, took a page from the funny papers, and pressed it into a section of a wet painting. That was startling. <laughs> and he said the same thing. That feels better now. Uh, what, is, what, what is that about? Well, I think collage maybe was invented for that very reason. Ah. It reestablishes the plane again upon which you're making your judgments yeah. in relationship to the compositional analysis. A startling restart, just pasting something down. Then, of course, it makes its own convention. Of, well, I'll do it all over <laughs> yeah, yeah. and have everything flat by collage. Maybe I'm getting off the track, but those things are very useful for students as well to reorient the condition by which they're trying to re establish what's wrong with their work or what's needed in their work. You mentioned the Ocean Park paintings. Diebenkorn's Ocean Parks start in 67-ish. Your San Francisco-esque cityscapes start in 1972 or so when you bought a house in the city, I think in the Potrero Hill District. I understand the relationship between your having a house in the city and your cityscapes, but were you consciously mindful of engaging the Ocean Park paintings with those cityscapes? It would have been a, s- a slight thing, maybe, if conscious, very, very conscious. I admired those, of course, but I hadn't thought of those, what I was looking for. I actually, He wanted a kind of equilibrium, and I kind of wanted a disequilibrium. But some of the same tools are there, the diagonals. Oh, yeah. They were influenced by him, certainly. The way, the way in the Ocean Park paintings, it's color that leads a viewer to kind of recede beyond the picture plane. I mean, they're very flat, but, but you know, the layers of color mm-hmm. provide this illusion of space, whereas in your cityscapes, the illusion of space is provided by, by the roads and the diagonals, and yeah. the paint itself is flat. Different projective systems were used which I didn't think Corn was very interested in. But my interest was to use, hopefully, various projective systems attempting to bring them together into a unification. And it's right, I think, whether I ever did it successfully or not, because that equivocation also sort of interested me not to have a a settled, not too settled a thing, but to keep the paint, trying to keep the painting alive, whether it's like a Matisse tension idea or whether it's a disequilibrium Mm. notion. But the cityscapes were about a 14-year project overall. We'll probably come back to them. I really love them. (laughs) But but in the context of Diebenkorn, two other questions. Who painted cigar boxes first, you or him? No, the Macchioli painted the cigar boxes oh. first. You know their work? No. 
the Italian Macchioli group. No. They painted on cigar boxes very often. And that's where you both got the idea? I don't know where Dick got the idea. But that's where you got the idea. I got the idea from the Macchioli. Ah. Uh, Did you smoke cigars? Pretentiously sometimes. <laughs> there is a feel like a big shot. <laughs> there is one painting, at least one painting of yours of a cigar. Yeah. Um, it's just been lit and it's sitting I love in an the idea of cigars more than smoking. <laughs> <laughs> you and Diebenkorn both painted a lot of coffee cups. His were more clearly on tables. Yours, such as one in the Minetti Shrem show, I think a 61 painting just sits on a white ground. Hmm. For you, did the coffee cups come from him or did the coffee cups come from somewhere else? Well, I, I did know that he uh, did the coffee. It probably came from him. I even have a lit, that lithograph of his in the mm. coffee cup. It's a little different from that. Since mine is from memory, it's just a sort of a classic coffee cup, as I think of it. It's pretty much the same coffee cup in all of your paintings with a coffee cup. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I like these things, which are uh, so ubiquitous across so much of our land and uh, everywhere, really. I, especially, Amer I really do identify with the American idea of, of the work. That's where I came from. That's what I am. If anybody ever does a, a, a wall in a gallery someday, of 10 of your coffee cup paintings or 10 coffee cup paintings and four prints, they will be struck by how <laughs> enormously different each painting is. Horizon line, not horizon line. Desk line, not desk line. On, on a white background, on a orangish and purple background. It shows my desperation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it shows that that you know when a painter has a subject around which to build a thing, a painter will keep building around the thing. I'm so damn lucky to be a painter, <laughs> and I want to say something about that because it, it I've <laughs> come to believe that being, doing a painting is a good, really good painting is probably one of the more difficult things in the world to do. And I'm, I mean right up there with our most treasured accomplishments. And to be a part of that tradition, first of all, there's a real demeaning idea <laughs> because it, audaciousness beyond audaciousness to pick up a brush when what's happened in our tradition of painting those great painted worlds are an achievement beyond miracles for me it's engaging half a millennium of history or more the ridgeline paintings these are these are paintings of seemingly impossible sort of mountainscapes i think 1975, a painting called Yosemite Ridgeline is the first one. Am I right? Yeah. So do, it's just a big yeah thing. <laughs> so do do the ridgelines come out of Yosemite? Is that what informed the kernel you of the know, idea I to think start it doing? Came out of uh, where we discovered gold and in the foothills, Coloma Ridge. Yeah, that's that was painted on a spot. Oh, that was in plain air. The little one, plain air. Pat the pastel, right? You know, that's interesting because I've, I've, it strikes me that a lot of the ridge lines look like El Capitan. There are a lot of them. I actually went up there and painted. El Capitan? Mm-hmm. Is it intentional that there is a bit of Yosemite in the ridge lines? 
Well, you look for forms which you find interesting or beautiful or fitted to a compositional probe. I don't remember consciously. Half dome, yes, I, I, that's a very specific image. I think it's hard to do anything with it and you shouldn't do anything with it. It's already what it is and you're never gonna do much. Well, but by the time you started making half dome paintings, there were 120, 110 years of half dome paintings out there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> which didn't scare you off of the idea. Were you consciously interested in engaging Yosemite as a subject because it was such a great subject of art in the West and art in America? I think it also was part of some uh, project the government had in getting artists to do, as I remember, paintings, landscape paintings of America, maybe the parks or something. And I remember Pearlstein did something, Alex Katz did something, there were a number of people. I wish I could remember more specifically, it was been some time ago. But you didn't just make one half-dome painting, you, you kept making them. So yeah. there was something there yeah. for you. Yeah, right. Did that history, though, of, of so many painters going to Yosemite matter to you? Yes, and I like very much to identify with uh, Thomas Hill. And uh, I found a Thomas Hill painting in a Goodwill store with, with, retro, with stretcher bars, which were just redwood planks. And someone had hung it up by driving a nail through the top of the painting to the wall. Do you still have it? I still have it. I had it restored. <laughs> oh my God. I paid 75 cents for it too. <laughs> Is it a Yosemite Thomas Hill? It's a typical thing with a little fisherman and a sort of classic Thomas Hill. Wow. Tom Thomas Hill is one of those 19th century American landscape painters who yeah. Uh, is too forgotten. He was really way important. too forgotten. Way too forgotten. That painting at the Crocker is fantastic. It is astounding painting. He's Hill's, Hill's Yosemite paintings are better than Beer Steps. Most most of Beer Steps. Melodramatic, dramatic for one thing. More real, I feel. Which is why, to a native <laughs> Californian like like <laughs> like me and a near native Californian like you, that's probably why we. Uh, <laughs> That's all for part one of my conversation with Wayne Tebow. Next week, we'll continue our conversation about his painting, Yosemite, and Half Dome. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view through March 3rd is Living Proof, Drawing in 19th Century Japan exploring the methods, techniques, and subjects of drawings during Japan's Edo and Meiji periods. Originally created as the primary step in making ukoye prints, drawings of the type exhibited were often discarded or destroyed through the process of printing. With more than 70 of these rare works on display, Living Proof bears witness to the working practices of some of the most celebrated print artists of the era, including Hokusai, Kuniyoshi, and Yoshitoshi. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Book your tickets now for the Getty Villas February premiere presentation of Sapo, a provocative play loosely based on The Frogs by Aristophanes. Sapo takes place in mid-1970s San Francisco and L.A., where a young Chicano band sets out to make it big in the music industry. 
What ensues is a slithery world of mischief and deception. Sapo is adapted and performed by Culture Clash, a Chicano-Latino performance troupe whose work ranges from biting political satire to full-length original drama. The show also features Buyapango, an L.A.-based band whose vibrant sound fuses cumbia, merengue, punta, jazz, and funk. Learn more about this performance and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Memories of Underdevelopment, Art in the Decolonial Turn 1960-1985 at its downtown location from September 17th through January 21st, 2018. In collaboration with the Museo Humex in Mexico City and the Museo de Arte de Lima, Memories of Underdevelopment brings together artistic practices that, although evidently related, have until now been treated separately. Showcasing conceptual and performance artworks, this exhibition will shed new light on such well-known artists as Lina Bobardi, Elio Oidesica, and Ligia Pape, as well as lesser-known artists in Colombia, Uruguay, Chile, and Peru. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Portland Art Museum curator Julia Dolan. Her exhibition, In the Beginning, Minor White's Oregon Photographs, is on view now through October 21st. White is best known for co-founding Aperture Magazine, establishing the photography program at MIT, and for the work he made in the mid-20th century, much of which curator Paul Martineau and I discussed on the podcast on the occasion of a 2014 exhibition at the J. Paul Getty Museum. Dolan's exhibition features the work with which White effectively began his career in the late 1930s, work he made for the Oregon Art Project, a division of the Federal Works Project Administration. The exhibition is split into two phases. The first, featuring works of Portland's industrial infrastructure and more, is up through May 6th, and that's the work we'll discuss. Julia Dolan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. In a professional sense, anyway, I guess you could say Portland birthed Minor White. So let's go back to the beginning of his photographic career, or I guess maybe even a little before that. How does a Minneapolis born and raised 29-year-old Minor White end up in Portland in 1937? That is a question that remains a smidge hazy, and lore indicates that he was on his way to Seattle. He decided to come out west, brought his camera with him, left Minnesota during the summer of 1937, and decided to stop off in Portland for a number of days, potentially to see the Rose Festival, which is an important part of our uh, June time frame. And he may have run out of funds to finally get all the way to Seattle. So he took up residence at the YMCA here in Portland and started working as a night clerk in a hotel. White is in Portland in 1937, and he very quickly finds the Oregon Camera Club. Um, What is it, and why does White join it? The Oregon Camera Club was a group of individuals. For a long time, it was men. It took a while for women to be allowed to join, actually, uh, who celebrated photography as an art. And if we think about camera clubs at this time, even post-World War I, many of them still held on to a lot of pictorialist tenets. So the more sort of beautiful, dreamlike, painterly photography that was very, very popular end of the 19th, early 20th centuries. 
White didn't love that uh, conservative type of photography, but what he did get out of the group was their library. And so that's where he was introduced to people like Berenice Abbott, like Edward Weston, Alfred Stieglitz, who would become very, very important to him in the type of photographs that he made. And it also gave him, provided him a dark room. So he took what he needed from this club and left what he didn't in terms of aesthetics. And so I guess aesthetics is part of why he turns and kind of starts his own thing at a local YMCA um, including uh, uh, creating a gallery space. Um, I don't know if we know the answer to this, but why why a YMCA? Well, I think part of it is because he was living there. And so he knew the spaces within the building. He knew that he could create a group with the individuals who were staying there, passing through, living there with him. And it would allow him a way to start to take charge of photography in a way that would be more meaningful to him. And we can see that happening over and over as time moves on. And he moves from San Francisco to Rochester and then eventually to uh, MIT, that education is very, very important to him throughout the course of his career. And it's very important even at the beginning. He's in many ways, an autodidact when it comes to photography. He knew about it to a certain extent through his family, and he purposely bought a good camera before he came out to the Northwest. But he learned through the camera club and then on his own. So education to him was important from the beginning, and it seems that he really wanted to indoctrinate, if you will, others with the ways that he believed photography could work and look and perform. We have white in Portland. We have white making work. We have white showing work. Um, Within about a year of his arrival, the Works Progress Administration hires him. First, that seems awful quick. How, (laughs) how does, how did, how and why him? What, how did, how did that happen? It is incredibly fast and surprising. And when I look at the prints that he created, really only a year after he arrived in Portland and started working diligently to become a photographer, it's shocking the the beauty and the precision that he was able to pull forward and push out within a year of really um, taking charge of this career path. Uh, But he's someone who got to know people in different ways. He was um, taking photographs for a group from Reed College. This group was very concerned about housing conditions for individuals in Portland. He also worked for the People's Power League, which was pushing against the Bonneville Dam uh, and the costs of electricity that were coming from the Bonneville Dam. But then he worked photographically briefly for the Bonneville Dam right after that. So it sounds like through these different connections that he was making, whether photographically or um, organizationally, he met people who had some sway with the larger Works Progress Administration Mm. and with the Oregon Arts Project. 
uh, or Oregon Art Project in Oregon. And it is my understanding he was the only photographer to be hired during that project. There were other artists who were hired, but he was the only photographer. Your exhibition uh, starts with um, these WPA pictures, essentially. I, I don't mean physically starts with, I mean, I mean chronologically starts with. What distinguishes them as we as we we'll talk about specific pictures as we go along here, but kind of how do they fit in terms of uh, art history and and, you know, what makes them distinct? I find them perfect for the time period, this interwar period where modernity is pushed forward. We are in a machine age. I think what's incredibly important about the first phase that I've installed within the exhibition is that I've selected images that demonstrate his approach to modernity and to industry. And most people, if they know about Minor White's early work, they love the iron front building imagery because so much of that has been torn down. And there's a wonderful nostalgia for those old, beautiful buildings. But that was by no means the only thing that he photographed during that time. He, in many ways, celebrates industry that feels very, very Sheeler-esque. And he, he photographs grain silos and uh, warehouses along the Willamette River. And all of these structures that people tend to dismiss, especially now, were so critical to the vitality of this region. And a lot of the images that you see that he makes for the WPA are celebratory of these spaces and these functional structures. And a lot of them almost feel like photographs of cathedrals. And it's almost like the skyscrapers, the American cathedral. Well, what about the grain silo? Um, so you see these wonderful celebratory modern notes within these beautiful prints. Well, let's talk about one of those iron front buildings. Um, it's, it's maybe the most iconic um, picture in the show is titled Arches of the Dodd Building, which um, uh, was at Front and Ankney Street, right on, almost right on, uh, the Willamette River as uh, it runs through Portland, kind of right where the Burnside Bridge um, runs into uh, downtown Portland. The irony here is that this is uh, not a modern building and that White is finding um, a modern way to look at it, which seems to have been kind of what motivates him as soon as he gets to Oregon, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the, this is maybe almost the only picture of this period, or at least in the show, that includes a human. Why do you think White includes a human in this picture of past architecture, or, or you know, in this picture of architectural past made, made modern present? Well, I think there's so many reasons, of course, to include a human figure. If we think even about 19th century photography, travel photography, we include human figures to give a sense of scale. So it could be as simple as that, but that is not by any means the only issue that White is looking for here. Uh, I think it gives a sense of presence, 
of use of the space, certainly. Uh, Kevin Moore writes about this photograph, and there are a number of other photographs that do include people from this time period, and Moore indicates that this could be an indication of photographing individuals, particularly men who are cruising within the space of a city. For us, looking back to with eyes that are 80 years or so further on into the future, um, there's a wonderful added layer of nostalgia. And it may have been nostalgic for White in a certain way also because he knew that these buildings would be coming down in the near future because of the plans for the parkway that would be more modern and more useful for cars and for traffic. Um, and it is this individual, a young man, who's sort of looking out toward the left side of the image. Is this person looking towards the future, leaving the past behind? Is he a remnant of the past? Where is Portland moving to in this particularly complicated time? Yeah, there's a mystery to the image that is um, not creepy, but certainly gripping. Yes. You mentioned a moment ago the the precisionism of, of these pictures. You know, they probably celebrate industry a little less than including industrial agriculture, which was invented in, in the far west. Mm-hmm. They, they, they certainly celebrate industry less than, say, Sheeler's work, but they do raise the question, could White have known or did White know about precisionist painting and photography being made in the east? We do know that he knew about Berenice Abbott at that time. So at this point, she is just working on or finishing up with changing New York. So that's certainly in the back of his mind. It's really interesting to see the shadows in these pictures, not just between and on buildings, but even in a picture like Lily Pads and Pike, which reads in the sundial. Yes, absolutely. And that, when you see that photograph in person, it's a little more subtle than it looks online or on a screen, certainly, the tonality is stunning. And I always lovingly wrestle with the ways in which these papers from the 20s and 30s, which are gelatin silvers that are much more structured and uh, precise than pictorialist papers like um, platinum, certainly, But the tonality, this rich sepia, moves us back and forth between this, almost looking to the past and looking to the future. So we haven't hit these papers yet that have more brighteners in them and reflect light differently and are this much more pure kind of black and white. And certainly at this time, Miner can choose the type of paper that he wants to use. Some would be colder than others. But the paper that he is working with for this process is very, very warm. And it, it makes, especially that image and some of the other images on boardwalks or, or the sand or the sawdust piles that he photographs, it um, mimics that surface, that texture, that actual object more closely. And it's a really wonderful experience to be present with those images. I should have brought this up before. To be clear, these prints go back to when and who made them? So the prints go back to 1938, 1939. And then we do have some from Eastern Oregon um, from 1940. And these are minor whites prints. So pretty much the earliest prints we have that he made. 
for the most part, it there are some that do exist today from his time in Minnesota in 1937 or so, but these are really uh, the earliest prints that you will find in a large number. I wanted to pick out a couple of pictures from the show that are particularly striking and see if you have ideas about where they came from, either physically or um, intellectually or allegorically or whatever. Um, one of them is Hand Forge, um, which is a picture from about 1939 that references human presence, but is chillier um, than that. There's definitely not a person in the picture. Um, what What is, you know, we'll have a picture of it. We'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com. Um, what's it showing and what do you think White is doing with it? In the background, running from lower right to upper left, we have planks, wood planks that might be on a dock or in a some type of industrial space. But then pushing straight for us in the foreground is an object made of metal. And I can't tell you what it is. I know that it says 14 inch buffalo on it. I don't know what it does. But laying on top of it is a worn and weathered glove. I can pick that out. So I do have the sense that there is an individual who has been working really, really hard, almost to the bone, if you will. When you look at the the index and second fingers of the glove, you can see that that has worn away. So we, without having a human being in the space, know that hard work is happening here. But it this image starts to push in some ways with other sort of pipes and maybe coal or, or burned wood, who knows what, on the left-hand side. Um, it almost starts to push towards abstraction because we've got objects that we can't quite understand flipping up and pushing toward us in the, in the, at the base of the image and then other angles moving around toward the back and off toward the right. And for me, when I look at these images, I see such wonderful richness of detail, but I also start to see the type of work that Miner is moving toward that we are much more familiar with in the later work that he does that is more about uh, equivalency. So images that are abstracted in certain ways, but are meant to move us in a different direction, perhaps in our mind or our hearts or our souls. So while this doesn't quite do that work yet, we can see that he is not just photographing and describing very quickly and very simply for the WPA uh, some type of factory. He's showing us a detail within this industrial space that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to us, but visually is incredibly intriguing. It's also possible to read it as a homoerotic image. I guess so. I have not thought about it that way, but I would love to hear how you see that. There's uh, a pipe at a jaunty angle extending from behind the glove. There's an orifice front and center. True. I'm probably over, maybe over reading what I know about White's biography into his work, but certainly his lifelong, or not lifelong, but close to lifelong struggle with the closet is mm -hmm. certainly evident in, in, in the work for most of his career. It may be possible to read this as along with 
as, as along with the Arches of the Dodd building image as, as kind of a beginning of that, that engagement. Sure. Yeah, that is definitely possible. I had not ever looked at this work in that way. Another image I wanted to raise is a picture of a log boom yeah. um, floating in what is presumably the, the Willamette River, although it could be the Columbia. Uh, it's, an, it, it, it's an extraordinary picture that if White had wanted it to, could reference, you know, could have reference in American painting and in 19th century American photography. I guess first, what is a log boom? And um, and secondly, what makes this picture um, so really great? <laughs> I did not do a lot of research on log booms. So... <laughs> Oh, well, I have, so maybe I should jump in. Log, log booms are a, are a relic of the 19th and in the West, also the 20th century. Um, loggers, timber cutters would uh, fell trees, um, and the only way to move felled trees, um, you know, going back to 18th century America, is to float them down rivers. And when they would uh, uh, get to... Um, a point where they would be removed from the river, say for a mill, timber companies or the mill itself would kind of round them up um, in kind of a corral built from other board, and they would hold them in place with these with these kind of giant floating docks almost that, that, that are called log booms. And so this white is a a picture of 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 such a boom, and it's I don't know, I really like it. I yeah. but maybe. Do you, is there, is there something about it that particularly strikes you? Oh, I love it too. I am very curious about where he's standing when he makes this photograph. Is he on? The angle is, is befuddling. Yes. Yes. And there are a number of photographs within the exhibition where he's up very, very high and it feels almost aerial. This is not quite aerial, but I'm not sure where he's standing from. Is it from a window in... Uh, an industrial complex? Is it from a bridge? I'm not sure. I love the oil slick that we can see in the lower right-hand side. That's very subtle. And then in the water, the reflection in the more center area and then upper left, there are some clouds reflecting there. That's not particularly easy to call out in a print like this. And there's something so beautifully structural and forceful about the patterning of the logs within the log boom. It's a little bit reminiscent of uh, an image or two that Stieglitz would have made. The, uh, there's a fairy image that he has where there are these um, wonderful striking verticals within the water. Again, it pushes toward this abstraction so early for him. This is only about 1939. He's been working just a couple of years. It is very clear that he is paying attention to the type of photographs that are being made throughout the United States, uh, probably imagery that's being made in Europe as well, as long as publications were available to him at that time. Such a picture of the past and the present, too. I mean, in the past, yeah. timber was used for fuel. Um, the timber is 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 linear and modern looking, even though it's an old technology. Um, and then the oil slick in the foreground is is the present, the, the, the new current form of energy. It's abstract, the present uh, being represented by not just the slick, but the abstraction of the slick. It's a very cool picture. I love it. Julia Dolan, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. 
Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.